HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb Credit. Heritage Radio Network listeners can learn more about the power of community capital by visiting honeycombcredit.com. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we're celebrating the food culture of South Carolina with its chef ambassadors. I'm super excited that it's soft shell crab season. <laughs> Those little suckers are delicious. People think, oh, tomato is a tomato. No, there is a, a good tomato and a bad tomato. So when they come to, to Hampton or even, you know, even in South Carolina, you can really find a incredible ingredient. We started getting lettuce from Micro Leon Farms in Conway. He's it's a, a super sweet family that runs that little farm. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hola familia, welcome to Cooking in Mexican from A to Z. I'm your host, Aaron Sanchez. And I'm Sarela Martinez. We're really excited today. My mom and I are going to be talking about the development of Mexican cuisine with a very special guest, uh, a gentleman who I think uh, has really done so much for, to be able to add so much flavor and, and an academic approach to how Mexican food has developed and, and, and how impactful it is in Mexican culture. And we're really delighted to have Jeffrey Pilcher here. He's a professor of food studies at University of Toronto, one of my favorite cities, a great underappreciated food city by by the way, I think it's amazing, uh, and he's an author of some game-changing, unbelievable books. Uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, que viven los tamales, which is a, a beautiful sort of love letter to food and the making of this Mexican identity and and who we are. And then, of course, Planet Taco, a global history of Mexican food. So um, there's so much that Jeffrey's going to add uh, to this unbelievable podcast, and we're super stoked to have you here. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Chef. And, and thanks also for the shout out to Toronto. And I have yeah. to say, it is a wonderful eating town, but the Mexican food is not up to a level. And so if you're ever thinking about uh, another <laughs> restaurant, uh, just keep us in mind. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mom. I have to tell you how I met Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. It was right at the beginning of the restaurant, or, you know, the first year at least. Mm -hmm. And he walked in with this paper he had done comparing 
Rick Bayless, Susana Parazuelos, Patricia Quintana, Diana Kennedy, and Mike Cooking. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? I do. I do remember that. <laughs> and I remember the, the, the thesis was that native Mexican cooks could play around with the food and Americans who would go in to study wanted them. It was like, oh, aren't they cute? Let's, you know, let's go pl plant a seed of corn or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we'll make tortillas in nine months. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that, that's really funny. And, but also, I mean, when I think about, you know, because I was a, a fresh out of graduate school at the time. And, you know, I mean, I was kind of dropping this off. I had no, no idea I would even meet you. I just, you know, kind of, you, could, you could maybe give it to her. and <laughs> Maybe mm -hmm. she'll read it one of these days. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I just think what's beautiful about our topic today is the development of Mexican cuisine and how far it's changed from, let's just say, Mom, when you got here in the early, when we got here in the early 80s to New York City, and what, and let's talk a little bit about what the landscape looked like at that time. I think it's a really good question as far as how were people uh, perceiving Mexican food uh, during that time. And let's not forget that that was like the, the influx of the, all the French chefs coming from France at the time, the Nouvelle Cuisine and, you know, Jean-Louis Paladin and Michel Richard and all those people. So that kind of maybe overshadowed a lot of the contributions that Mexican food was trying to make at the time. But let's talk a little bit about what it looked like at that time. Well, the only Mexican restaurants that were were Spanish Mexican restaurants. Mm -hmm. And there was Josefina Howard. That she had a restaurant, I think it was called Xochitl. Mm -hmm. But she was bringing in some regional Mexican food. Mm -hmm. Tex-Mex was very big. You know, there was a very successful restaurant. Uh, I forgot what it was no, called. No, remember Rio? El Rio? Rio Grande. Yeah, Rio. yeah, but that was much later. Yeah. You know, there was just this Texas people that, Juanitas. Yeah. The, rest, the, the name of the restaurant was Juanitas. And there was a, a regional restaurant called something La Paloma en el Paladar. Yeah. You know, en el Paladar. What a lovely man that was. You know, when when we got two stars at uh, at Sarela, he, he came by with flowers and said it should have been three Aww. you make us you give us bring us all honor mm -hmm. so that was sort of that was the, the the mood of that time yeah and we're talking just new york by the way so you know as as far as being the food mecca and capital of the world in our opinions i mean people can vary on that um jeffrey what were your some of your earlier your earliest memories on how mexican food was being cooked what were some of your thoughts uh, was it authentic to you? Did you feel like something was missing? Yeah. So, uh, you know, actually, if I could just very briefly yeah. give a, a little uh, shout out to, um, um, in particular, on on uh, New York Mexican restaurants, because there's a wonderful uh, digital history site that's been done by Professor Lori Flores at mm. uh, at Stony Brook, and she's just had some some graduate students do, developing this website, which. If, if you just search for New York City Mexican restaurants, I think you probably find it. And um, it's, uh, it, it really does some fascinating stuff. And of course, you know, I mean, here's the thing about Mexican food is that, I mean, you know, there's the stuff that is really accepted as high class and it's so rare. And I mean, obviously, it's, it's Zarela was one of the really cutting edge ones. And, and, and now, I mean, you know, as more, as more Mexican uh, chefs move to New York, you know, it's turning into this, as they call it, Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, at, at, at the time, you know, there were Mexicans there. But, you know, because, I mean, the, the workers starting already with the, with the Bracero program is it's yeah. just that, that, you know, and, and as, as so often, you know, they're, 
you know, doing these these food carts somewhere. They're feeding the neighborhood, um, and and uh, it's it's you know it's sort of finding it is is the real challenge. And actually, I remember Zarela, uh, you know, kind of taking me on a tour of the the various places, you know, and and she was kind of just showing me her her, her secret finds, and that was really exciting. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, you know, there's just this. Um, for a very long time. I mean, Mexican food across the United States and Canada as well, you know, has been shaped by um, particular interpretations. And, and you know, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, say that Tex-Mex is not good food, but it, you know, you just, you know, if you have just one view of such a rich cuisine, you're obviously going to be missing an awful lot. And, and, and that's always been uh, the problem with with Mexican food in the United States. I mean, going back to the 19th century. So yeah. So I think you bring up a good point, Jeffrey. I think I think it's important for our listeners to know and have a distinction between what is Tex-Mex and what is authentic Mexican regional food. And I think a lot of it gets jumbled together. And I think, Mom, it's a good point. It's a good opportunity for you to tell the story about how your mom, my mama, kind of defined what Tex-Mex is. And uh, you care to share that, Mom? Well, I don't remember which anecdote you're... you're. Well, she she basically said that, you know, a lot of Tex-Mex was born from Texas cowboys working in Mexico and uh, uh, eating there and enjoying aspects of the cuisine, but maybe they thought some of the, the chiles were too spicy or they thought some of the, the dishes needed to be slightly altered, so they started using milder chilies like green chili and then flour tortillas, heavy emphasis on beef. So the food started to kind of change a little bit through the through the sort of cowboy culture in Texas, which was at one point Mexico, obviously. I explain it as the people of the United States took the Mexican cuisine and made it into American, which is exactly what the Spanish did when they came here. And the Mexicans, the Spanish brought all these ingredients together, and the and the Mexicans combined them with the native ingredients and cooked them their way. And the Spanish did the same thing. You know, they took the Mexican ingredients and combined it with what they brought and cooked it their way. What do you think of that definition, Jeffrey? Yeah, I mean, I think that really, you know, everybody uh, is going to adapt uh, recipes to their own taste. I mean, you actually, I remember you telling me your problem with your chefs was is that they always wanted to change the recipes. And it's like, no, these are my recipes. I'm the boss. You're going to cook it my way here at Zarela. I mean, it's my name on the restaurant. Yeah. And and so, uh, and, and, and I think that that, that is natural. And, and, you know, I mean, we, we all uh, just, I mean, it, it, it's just, that's what happens. And I think the problem, though, Ha- occurs when somebody kind of claims ownership and says, you know, this is all of Mexican food, or this is all of whatever. And, and um, you know, I think there needs to be maybe a little bit more humility in, you know, kind of, this is my food, uh, but, but, you know, maybe it's not uh, trying to, 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 to say that other people are wrong. And, and, and so it, it, these are very difficult questions, and, and I totally understand uh, why, you know, people get, get, get concerned about, you know, sort of the ways that, that, that cuisines are represented, uh, you know, whether it's in the media or in restaurants or whatever. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think that, that uh, part of the, the problem is just that, that there's just this kind of natural desire to kind of make things fit more, um, and, 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 and so, something gets lost as a result of that. What do you mean about the food becoming part of the Mexican identity or vice versa? 
Well, you know what you what you planned in in Gavivano's Yeah, so I th- I think that actually just f- we are all so uh, deeply attached to the foods. I mean, you know, the childhood foods. We 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 sort of are are, are tasting uh, foods. We're you know sort of entering the culture before we're literate. I mean, way before you know we're we're speaking, we are you know kind of tasting these foods and we're associating them with our mothers and you know and and so you know th- this kind of uh, association then um, becomes such a fundamental social bond that, um, you know, as, as communities start to get larger, as we start to, you know, kind of invent countries like Mexico, which, of course, you know, I mean, Mexico has all of these regional cuisines because, I mean, going all the way back to pre-Hispanic times, you had different uh, local cultures. You know, the Maya were distinct from the people, you know, living in the Central Valley, the the, the Nahuas were distinct from the Mexica, were distinct, you know, all of these different, uh, you know, uh, cultures had their own cuisines and their own different foods. And so, you know, a kind of a Mexico uh, becomes an idea uh, when it, um, you know, when you, when you build these nations and, and, and cuisine becomes part of that, that process of saying, you know, what it, does it mean to be Mexican? Um, and, and yet there's, there's, there's struggles that inevitably, uh, occur around that, you know, because somebody wants to claim this is what I think Mexican should be. And it's not that. And, and those struggles really, uh, you know, continue down to the present and they matter because, you know, it's, it's partly, it's just, you know, this is, this is the food that I think, you know, is right. But it also matters because, you know, there's money to be made. There's a, you know, a lot of, of economic advantage. And, and, you know, I mean, if you kind of claim this is what Mexican food is, uh, you know, you're going to be the one profiting from it. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, I mean, when you have, you know, a company like Taco Bell, you know, I mean, they're making a lot of money off of, you know, one particular version of Mexican food. I mean, they're all that a lot of Mexicans don't really, uh, don't really accept. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know what I think, Taco Bell, has played a big role in opening people to Mexican flavors. Yeah. Even though they're not like traditional Mexican flavors. Yeah, and then you take and you look at what Chipotle has been able to do as well a little bit as far as them taking it and trying to have more of a you know, more of an organic approach and making sure that, you know, what they're doing is fresh and visible and taking those little elements. I think that's important. And I think, you know what, for all of its worth, I think a lot I think the perception of Mexican food has grown exponentially in the last 30 years. It's a food that people have very strong opinions about. It's almost like Chinese food. Like, you know, because it's such a part of, you know, Mexican food now is part of the diaspora of, of American food, if you think about it, right? In a lot of ways. I think a question that I have uh, for Jeffrey and for you, Mom, as well, would be like, so we understand that the Spaniards came here in 1519, landed in the Puerto Veracruz. That, in essence, became the first uh, time that Mexican, it, Mesoamerican food was introduced to a lot of these ingredients that came. How do you think, uh, what were some of the biggest contributions that the Spaniards brought to Mexican cuisine? Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, there the a lot of the the livestock they brought with them. I mean, you know, I can't imagine, you know, tamales today without the pork fat that uh, mm-hmm. that the that the Spaniards brought. Um, you know, I mean, it 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 the. the, the the cuisines have become so so blended together uh, that it's it's you know it's 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 really hard to even imagine you know these 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 pre-Hispanic uh, uh, dishes. Although obviously you know I mean they had you know mole and tamales and chocolate and all of these others, but you know it's it's sort of you know that that whole uh, um, uh, sort of. Uh, 
cuisine, uh, pre-Hispanic menus, which have become so popular really in Mexico for, for gosh, now uh, decades. Um, you know, they're, they're this, this wonderful kind of uh, imagining, you know, kind of a, 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 an ancient past. Um, so, but, but I mean, you know, I think that, that a lot of people, you know, outside of Mexico, um, don't really understand that like the food of Veracruz, for example, you know, I mean, which has, you know, it's it's so Mediterranean in so many ways. Uh, but, but that is, is, is a Mexican cuisine and it's, you know, it's got the influences, not just of, of Spaniards, but, uh, uh, African influences there. And so, you know, I think that, that, uh, uh, and, and I mean, you know, even even uh, today, I mean, new new influences are are coming into to Mexico Mexican food, like the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely! I mean, you know, sushi sushi is huge in Mexico, and and I mean, I'm not sure that that all Japanese would uh, necessarily appreciate uh, your 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 typical Mexico City sushi, but but it, but it is uh, <laughs> it's it, there. it is big. It's there. I mean, you know, the Lebanese. I mean, where would where would Mexico be without you know tacos al pastor and and the tacos arabes that came before it, and so yeah, I think that that and 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 that sort of global mixing is, uh, I mean, you know, it's well, I mean, this the conquest. It's itself. planet taco. It's planet taco. It's planet taco, exactly. Which, by the way, we're going to give you a lot of praise on. I, I think your books have been an absolute insight. I give them to all my chefs and to all my managers for them to have a baseline understanding of how important food has played a role in Mexican culture. So we thank you profusely for that, Jeffrey. Well, thank you. And I think your your contributions are amazing. Thank you. I I have to say, you know, other than Felipe Armesto, you know, Felipe Armesto who wrote Near a Thousand Tables, great book. Um, You know, I think your your, your books have a lot more, um, to be honest, a lot more passion and a lot more texture. You really, I can feel your passion for the food where he does it in a very academic approach, I think a little too much. But one of the things talking about the contributions of the Spaniards made to the new world, okay, what was the agenda? Well, the agenda was to find El Dorado, right? This, this city of gold. And probably secondary was to convert the pagans or the indigenous people to Christianity, right? So what they brought with them was wheat, you know, the body of Christ, Venus Venifera, the blood of Christ, they brought olive oil for communion. So you think about how those ingredients kind of influence the religious uh, agenda that the Spaniards have. And I think that's really neat to recognize as well, you know? Oh, yeah. And I mean, you can definitely see this, for example, in Day of the Dead. I mean, you know, the yeah. breads that, I mean, they, they have become so central, you know, even in indigenous communities. Um, and, uh, you know, by the same token, I mean, you know, you know, where is the criollo, you know, that most elite of Mexicans who is not eating his, his chili or his, you know, I mean, uh, and so, so I think that, that, that it's, uh, the food is, I mean, obviously it, there's so much, uh, class stratification and, and divisions, ethnic divisions. Um, but there's some level at which, you know, it, everyone is connected by the food. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are going back to traditional methods, even even the rich and and uh, you know and the more sophisticated people. Absolutely, absolutely, and it. I mean, it it it's really has become, I think, a uh, um, a kind of a. a you know, getting some of these re- restaurant reservations becomes kind of a status symbol. You know that um, that Coman uh, he was telling me something really interesting. He said, you know. Enrique Olvera can take five ingredients that aren't Mexican and cook them 
and they taste Mexican. <clears throat> and another chef who is very, which, whose name I won't mention, <clears throat> who is driven to traditional stuff, has ovens and makes his own masa and everything. No matter what he makes, it doesn't taste Mexican. Yeah, it's true. And sometimes you have to have that in your, in your DNA, in your soul. But that's not taken away from people that like Diana Kennedy, the, the Rick Baylesses of the world, that have put Mexican food on the map from a purist standpoint, from just just approaching the food, admiring it, feeling the need to to bring it to the masses, and and and, and whether it's through books in Diana's case or restaurants through Rick. So, um, I think that's an important question. You know, as a Mexican, as Mexicans, my mom and I, how do we feel about? Uh, people like Alex Stupak, uh, you know, and, and other, sh- yeah, and other chefs, and other chefs embracing the food, but not may- maybe not getting it. You know what I'm saying? So, what do you think about the globalization thing, situation now? You know, I mean, it, it's it's true that uh, you know, I mean, being able to, uh, I mean, you know, with without having that that. Um, I guess innate, I mean, or not, you know, sort of that growing up in a culture, you know, to sort of uh, to, to, to perceive it at that deep level, which really, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like uh, learning a language, you know, I speak Spanish, but it's always going to be a little rough and, and, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to miss things. And I think that, you know, in the same way, you know, when you're speaking in the kitchen, you know, uh, that, 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 I mean, the, the, the tastes are so subtle and yet those subtleties really kind of distinguish about you know what 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 really comes across as as, as seeming right, um, but I think overall there has been and, and this is something that I think really speaks to whether it's you know in in in, in a in in a in a fine restaurant or even in just something like a Chipotle uh, there has been a, a kind of a, a improvement that has just generally raised the level of of cooking and whether it's in you know kind of the supply chains that are you know just bringing better ingredients or whether it's in I don't know uh, the technology or training or whatever it is but I think that that I mean uh, you know that you can it's it's just a lot easier to get a really good meal now than it was you know when I was a kid so, and so I think what, a, a big part go, uh, go ahead mom I'm sorry what are the trends right now in Mexican food Oh gosh, well, I, I'm I'm really not. I'm a historian. I I can tell you what the trends were, you know, 500 years ago. Oh, yeah, no, I think I, I think the trends right now, mommy, is you know, there's a lot of Mexican regional cuisine that's starting to be uh, cooked not not just in the United States but in Mexico as well. I think what's happening, especially here in in the, in the states, is that chefs are recognizing that their line cooks that are unbelievably talented come from particular regions of Mexico and they want to give them an opportunity to be able to open their own restaurants and support them in that venture. And now we're starting to see that happen. You know, I work with Joe Bastianich on MasterChef. He has Italian restaurants and his best, his best pasta cooks are all from Puebla, Mexico. You know what I mean? So it's just like the irony of that and you know, how many Mexican chefs and cooks all over Mexico want to open French and Italian restaurants as opposed to going back to roots is a very interesting point of view. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, to, to see to your opinions on why you think that is. Why not embrace mom's food, you know, because you get it at home. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think there is something that, you know, especially if you're coming from Mexico, you know, that that's just, you know, what you ate and that, uh, you know, Italian and French, that was fancy stuff. And, and, and I think there's a challenge, right, you know, of, 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 you know, some, some 
Joven from Puebla is like, oh, boy, I can do this. You know, I mean, I, I and 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 boy, they have shown it. I mean, you know, uh, in so many restaurants in New York and and you name it. You know, it's uh, the, the 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 cooks who are doing the who are who are doing that work. You know, are are. And I, and I think that's, you know, just an amazing American uh, story of immigration, you know. I mean, that's the, the same thing that, that, you know, I mean, America was built on. And, and so, you know, I mean, on the one hand, that it, it, there is a, uh, the, the, that, that, that status. And I think what's, what's really uh, changing, and, and, and it has been, you know, very recent, is that, that people are now, I mean, you know, at least starting to say, you know what, Mexican food can be just as good as any other, right? It's not just something, you know, that's, uh, and, and um, you know, not that, that, you know, those kind of street corner tacos are something to be looked down upon, but, uh, you know, that, that this is something, you know, where you can do fine dining that is as is, is, is refined as anywhere else. And I think that's what really had to happen. And, and you know, I mean, uh, you know, whether it's Enrique Olvera, I mean, lots of people are, you know, were sort of part of that, that movement. You were part of that movement, but uh, you mm. were both part of that movement. But, but, you know, I think that is, I think, really important is to sort of gain that kind of recognition and to to really show uh you know that 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 those foods that were you know maybe maybe you know they were known by local people but they maybe didn't have that same level of 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 you know kind of acceptance right uh, yeah so what were the the trendy foods 500 years ago <laughs> Well, actually, there's there's some really interesting archaeological research that's going on in 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 Mexico right now. There's a wonderful book that's coming out, or I think it, it is out by Tracy Ardren uh, on um, Maya uh, foods, and uh, she she's an archaeologist who has been digging at Chichen Itza, and it turns out. Uh, that you know the the, the great uh, civilization there, um, which of course was tied to other uh, uh, centers, including uh, um, Cholula in, in outside of Puebla city, and mm. um, and uh, um, uh, El Tajin in uh, in yeah. Veracruz in northern Veracruz. Uh, that that the, the, you know these were these these unique cultures uh, united by sort of the, the this cult of Quetzalcoatl that long distance trade between them. Uh, but but what uh, Tracy found was that that there was a culinary element to it, and that um, you know the the elites in Chichen uh, were eating um, these these dishes as a way of you know kind of uh, of creating an, an image of what it means to be uh, a part of of Chichen and and the the new technology the the, the fancy new cooking utensil that, that that had not been really used in the, in the Maya lands before then uh, was the mulcajete. And, um, and, and they were doing it uh, at, uh, uh, in, in, in small gatherings. So, you know, I mean, long in, in, in Mesoamerican history, like all societies, uh, you know, they, they, they would have these giant banquets at which rulers would, you know, kind of hand out tamales or chocolate or whatever, and it was kind of a way of saying how great they were. Um, but at Chichen, a lot of these uh, celebrations were on a very small scale. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, you know, instead of having the, you know, the, like the giant pot of mole, you know, that you'd be grinding on your matate on, on you know, sort of on, for mass production, 
uh, they were doing them in these little mocajetes, right? You know, which kind of is an intimate sort of of a dish that uh, we don't know what what they were preparing in there. Um, but you know, what, what that that sort of small scale dining of kind of using these these cooking implements as a way of 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 of, of showing uh, both distinction but also community. It reminded me of nothing so much as uh, the the table side guacamole that you get in these restaurants, <laughs> and I was yeah, thinking, yeah. boy, what you know, when, when are when are the the, the modern day chefs going to start doing you know kind of table side uh, chichen itza guacamole? So I don't that, know. That's a great answer, and mom, mom, see you open up Pandora's box there, or Pandora's mocajete, and and I love that. Um, Mom, tell, tell uh, our listeners about when you started your, uh, your, your, you know, your restaurant and your cuisine, you were considered a revolutionary as, as far as how, how different your flavors were, your dishes were. And then as your, as your career started to mature, you became more of a traditionalist. Can you explain how that was the, the perception, Mom? Well, when I first got here, first of all, nobody knew about home northern cuisine. And since I wasn't, I had no training or anything, I started making, for the big parties, for the press, little home versions of my dishes. You know, the, the snapper hash, picadillo, cochinita pibil, you know, things like that. And, but to the people, they were very sophisticated. They thought it was gourmet food. And it wasn't. It was just home cooked, you know, your, your mama's home cooking. But as the time changed... I started bringing in all the party dishes from all the regions, and the people really started seeing how wide the subject is. You know, Sarela was very revolutionary as far as bringing food from all different regions on weekends. Mm. I think, and, and Mom, I took a lot of your, um, I think your bravery and your courage for making dishes that at that time were not understood and, 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 and beloved or respected. Um, and, you know, sadly, I don't think for better or worse, you, Rosa Mexicano in, and Sarelas were always kind of pitted against each other because you guys kind of launched around the same time. Um, but I thought, obviously, our food at the restaurant, your food at Sarelas was a game changer because it, it was, I think, did the best job of capturing regional food, Mexican yeah. food at its time. What do you cook, Jeffrey, at home? Oh gosh, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to get um, really good ingredients. In fact, I for a long time, I mean, to, well, to this day, I mean, you know, I have to buy a lot of, of of chilies just to make sure that I'll get one that has enough, you know, picante in it to actually make yeah. the dish work. And, and I'm just like, you know, I I, I joke that 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 the uh, uh, that the Canadian customs is, you know, keeping Canada safe from, you know, Mexican food. And, so. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Mexican people. Well, actually, no. I mean, it, it, there, there, there are, you know, the community is small, but I think in part just because, uh, you know, the, 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 every country has its own sort of ties of, of migration. And, 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 and Canada does have a lot of, of, of ties to Mexico, but, um, 
anyway, so so th th that is that is a, a, a valid point. But um, so you know, it's it's and, and but I mean, really, when I'm cooking, uh, you know, I mean, if for a party, I you know, I love to do something like you know, finding a uh, uh, to making making a pozole or you know something yeah. something big like that, and you know, because I mean, you, you actually have to go to a, a, a Chinese grocery to get the, the the pig head, but but you know, you kind of. <laughs> You know, and, I love and, it. <laughs> and well, but I mean, you know, that's that's kind of uh, the, these these sorts of connections you find in restaurants. You know, it's like you're saying, you know, Mexicans cooking there in Italian restaurants. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of 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 ties, you know, that people can make, you know, in in the grocery store, in the kitchen, in the market, what have you. Um, and so, but you know, I mean, for for just regular home cooking, honestly, I mean, I like making just chilaquiles. You know, I, I, I yeah. you know, those, those sort of very basic uh, things that uh, you know aren't fancy, but that do um, sort of bring uh, um, a, a sense of of. Um, uh, of what Mexico is, and actually, I'll give you one example. And and so, just you know, in the summer on, on the streets of of my neighborhood, I will find uh, um, uh, 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 verdolagas just growing there between oh, wow. you know. The, the, yeah, and I'm I'm not about to like harvest something off of those streets, mind you. But uh, you know, I mean that you know, I occasionally I'll go you know find some 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 uh, or, or or plant uh, some at you know just to to make a, a verdolagas dish, you know, because I mean yeah. that's the sort of you know home cooking that 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 really brings me back to Mexico. Yeah, so verdolagas for everyone is purslane. Uh-huh. It's tart. You know what? They're, they're in season here for about five weeks, and every week I eat them. You know, with chile colorado, with a little bit of cream and cheese, like your mama used to make them, with pipián. Delicious. Delicious. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy to use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb Credit. Heritage Radio Network listeners can learn more about the power of community capital by visiting honeycombcredit.com HRN. We all know that food businesses like yours are the backbone of your community. 
You make your neighborhood a more delicious place to be, and your customers are hungry for more. Food businesses across the country are working with Honeycomb to open new locations, buy equipment, and grow. You too can unlock fair growth capital by allowing your community to invest directly into your business. A crowdfunded loan from Honeycomb deepens your customer relationships and gives them a whole new way to engage with your business. You'll also get access to thousands of local investors in the Honeycomb network who are passionate about seeing food businesses succeed. Honeycomb is the community bank of the 21st century. Fair rates, flexible terms, and no prepayment penalties. Honeycomb has proven to be an invaluable growth tool for all kinds of businesses, from James Beard-nominated restaurants and upstart food trucks to organic farms and award-winning breweries. Best of all, with Honeycomb, you're paying back your neighbors, not big banks. To learn more about how Honeycomb Credit can help grow your business while building vibrant, financially empowered neighborhoods, visit honeycombcredit.com HRN. When you're lecturing about Mexican cuisine and the culture, uh, do you have future chefs within your midst? Do you have food writers within your midst? What is yeah, the... I mean, we've got a food studies program, and I mean, you know, they're they're going to be doing all kinds of things. Uh, what I don't actually have is, you know, uh, Mexican students. I mean, you know, there just aren't that many, and so you know, and and they're coming to uh, uh, the classes, you know. Uh, for, for, for many of them, you know, I mean, Mexico is, is, is just this alien place. I mean, you know, and, and, and I remember one time I, we were making uh, a, a Maya chocolate, you know, or kind of pouring mm. it back and forth to get it all, uh, you know. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's a, a spicy hot chocolate. And I'll never forget the look of the face of this, this young woman. I mean, when she tasted it, it was just like, this was so not the chocolate she was expecting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Totally. And even the ones who, you know, kind of know the, the, the Tex-Mex version of Mexican food, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a whole different world. And, and, and because, you know, I mean, our students are more likely to be from, from China or India or, or the Philippines than, than, than from Mexico, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a great opportunity for me to learn about those cuisines, but also to, you know, kind of, uh, introduce some people to uh, Mexican food, and so I don't know. Maybe, maybe the the future uh, uh, we'll we'll see more of that Canadian, uh, that, that good Canadian mole coming out. <laughs> and how about your beer book? Oh yeah, so I, I've been I've been writing this book about beer for a very long time, and I'm having great fun with it, uh, and doing lots of research, and I'm, I'm I'm now writing it, and but you know I mean. Uh, I don't know about cookbooks. I've never written one of those, but but academic books take a long time. Why do you think they take so, such a long time? You could dash it off, but I mean, to really get into the research uh, to, to the point where, you know, you feel like you understand what's happening. And I mean, you know... Uh, uh, I mean, in some ways, I mean, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm astonished with the success that my books on Mexican food have because, uh, uh, and maybe it's just easier to write about a cuisine than it is to, to actually reproduce it in the kitchen. In fact, I'm quite sure it is, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it is, uh, but, but it, it, it really, you know, you have to immerse yourself in a culture uh, in order to, uh, to, to feel like you get it right. And even then, you know, I mean, 
I, you know, I just, there are times when I think about, you know, mistakes that I made and I only realize it later. And I'm just like, well, you know, partly it's, it's, it just, it's, it's, it's impossible to, to, you know, get every little detail right. So. Yeah. You know, when, when Oliver Sacks used my Oaxaca book for her, for his uh, Oaxaca journal, he made a lot of mistakes. And I said, Oliver, this is wrong. That's wrong. And he just said, I do that. <laughs> I do that. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah. Mom, you and I have both written three books, you know, and Jeffrey, very prolific author. It's, it's never, you can never get all of the things you want included into it, obviously. Uh, you can just do your best and make sure that you're accurate and, and you're passionate and your point of view comes across, you know? I remember Paula Wolford told me one day, just remember, you're going to have to live with that book for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. One last question. What do you think are the five classic Mexican dishes? Oh, gosh. Um, mole tamales, uh, let's see, uh, pozole, uh, chocolate, and uh, a dish to be named later when... Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe carnitas or something like that perhaps yeah but you know if, uh, if you if you always if you fill in that last one then somebody's going to get you and say well you didn't say that and i was like oh that was the last one exactly oh, smart that's a good... jeffrey smart very nice yeah. well we've known each other for so long you know he used to stay at victor's oh yeah victor nava mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. yeah. we love victor i love it well, thank you so much, Jeffrey. You've been so awesome and generous with your time. Um, and we just, we're very thankful and grateful. Wonderful. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to see you again, Sarela, and, and all the best wishes. Take care. And we just had the great pleasure of having Jeffrey Pilcher. You know, you got to check out his book, Viven los Tamales, Planet Taco. He's, of course, working on this new beer book, which we're really excited about because I'm a fan of beer. Uh, and, um, yeah, just got to look him up. I mean, he's a fan of Cantiflas uh, <laughs> and the chaos of Mexican modernity, so you can always know that. Uh, just such such a deep and complex uh, uh, lover of Mexican cuisine and culture, and I just, we just, we're over the moon. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Cooking in Mexican from A to Z is powered by Simple Cast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without your support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Yeah.